Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. Last week, I shared with you a little bit about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I shared his story. He was a follower of Jesus who lived in Germany, and he lived during the time of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime. And what he saw during that moment in time was that the church, uh, in many ways the Lutheran church, but the church that was present in Germany, became more and more influenced by the Nazi party and in many ways began to uh, take on the anti-Semitism and even participate in the violence in the same way as Nazi Germany and the political party around them did. And, and Bonhoeffer was just disgusted at this. And what he called the faith that he saw in the church around him was Christless Christianity. He said there was a generic moral belief that was known as Christianity, but it had nothing to do with the Christ who the followers claimed to be worshiping, and it did not in any way resemble who he called his body, the church, to be. On June 17th, 1964, the recently consecrated wing of the Ku Klux Klan known as the White Knights gathered together in Raleigh, Mississippi at the Boykin Methodist Church. They were armed with rifles and pistols and shotguns, and they were preparing for what would go on to be an effort that would lead to the murdering of multiple African Americans. And before that, the grand chaplain ascended to the pulpit, and he asked Jesus to bless us now in this assembly, that we may honor thee in all things. How is it in Nazi Germany and in our own nation, those who claimed the name of Christ participated in things that were so clearly opposed to who he was and who he has called his body to be. We need to recognize the tendency that all of us have at all places, in all times, in all cultures, to frame Jesus, our mental perception of Jesus around our own preferences and agendas, to paint a portrait of Jesus in our mind that looks like us or looks like who we want him to be, or on the other hand, that looks like who someone else wants him to be who has handed this portrait down to us. Regardless, either way, it is shrinking Jesus down and it is reframing Jesus around our story. Instead, what we are called to do is to have our portrait of Jesus reframed around the true Jesus that we find in the pages of scripture. And this is what we hope to do as we study through John's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to allow the words that the spirit gives us to reframe our 
portrait, our understanding, our concept of Jesus, and therefore who we are called to be as his followers. And the purpose for all of this is the same as the stated purpose of John's gospel, which he gives. The the whole purpose of what we have here in these pages of scripture in John 20, 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We, are want, we want to, this morning, consider the beginning verses of John's account of the gospel and in many ways to see how they reframe the beginning of the scriptures. John paints a portrait of Jesus as first the logos, and that is the Greek word for the word, the logos. We find in the opening pages, the opening words of Genesis, that in the beginning, God. These are the exact same words that John picks up to begin his gospel, and that is not in any way by accident. And yet we find very quickly a change between the words of Genesis and what John begins his gospel with. Because instead of God, we find that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, the Logos in Greek, is now brought to the forefront. And we see that all things were created through him. Who's him? Well, John will show this word, this logos, to be the person of Jesus, of Nazareth. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So the word, Jesus, God in the flesh, was the creator of all things. This means that Jesus' story does not begin here In John's gospel, in our New Testament, over 2,000 years ago, instead, his story goes back into eternity past, as he was behind all of creation. And the word, specifically, the logos, was behind that. Now, this was not unprecedented in the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, we find the psalmist right in Psalms 33, 6, the heavens were made by what? The word of the Lord and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. The word of the Lord, this logos, it was seen in a Jewish context, which would have been reading John's words, as being tied to the wisdom of God or the Torah, the law. The the word, wisdom, the Torah, they were all brought together in this concept of logos And all of them would have pointed back to what they saw as God's first creation. Many Jewish writings around this time reveal wisdom or the Torah as being God's first act of creation. And then through this order, through this wisdom, God created everything else. Now, the concept was also found in Proverbs 3.19. The Lord founded the earth by wisdom and established the heavens by understanding. And this is where this concept of wisdom takes on a little bit of a different spin in the Greek or the Hellenistic culture. Because in this culture, the logos, the wisdom, was 
picked up by, by Plato, was picked up by many philosophers in the Greek tradition. And they saw wisdom or the logos specifically as being the first principle or universal reason or matrix or, or the one. If you've watched the matrix, you'll be familiar with that philosophical concept, which Keanu Reeves plays out. This, this one, this universal principle, this ultimate reason that was, was unifying and behind all things and in some way holding them together. And yet what John does breaks both categories. It breaks the categories of what the Jews would have had of the Torah or wisdom as the first creation. And it breaks far and away the, the philosophical concept of the Logos. Because he writes the word, the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus, or Yeshua, as he would have been called at the time from Nazareth, the principle of the Logos becomes personal. And in Jesus, God becomes observable. Verse 18, John tells us, no one has ever seen God. So God has never been seen. There is an invisible reality, John is saying, to who God is. The one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Jesus reveals God. And this is important. This is something that would have been mind-blowing, that would have been category um, destroying at some level. It would have been reframing in a massive way the concept that God could become a person, that the, the revelation of who God is would be who? Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of who God truly is. John 14, 9, Jesus will say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so this reframing of the beginning that John is doing, this going back to Genesis and reframing everything around the word, the logos, is calling us to reframe our understanding of God according to the revelation of Jesus, which we will find in the pages of John's gospel. Secondly, John paints a portrait of Jesus as the light. We read in verse four, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Now, all cultures, all people have asked the question, where does life come from? Because we understand, as we saw in Genesis, that seeds produce life. In the plant world, this is the case. A tree produces a seed, which produces a tree. And in the human world, the same is true. In the way that the Hebrew scriptures use the seed of a man, the seed of a human is what brings about new life. And so life begets life. But where does it all begin? Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? And John's answer is Jesus, 
or the Son of God, is the beginning. He is the source of life, and all life ultimately comes from him. It begins the whole process. And there's a whole other way that we'll see John take this category of life and use it. The, the word life or eternal life will be used throughout John's gospel over and over and over. And what we begin to see is that life is not a principle. <laughs> that life truly is embodied. Jesus is life itself. And the life that Jesus is, is not simply this time span of your brain firing and your heart beating and your lungs breathing, but there is a life that is eternal life that is outside of time and space. And that eternal life is found in Jesus and only accessible at some level through connection with him. And and so John will show this concept of, of humanity, but all of creation being fitted for Jesus, that all life comes from him, but all life in many ways, exists to be fitted with him. You think of a suit. If you have a fitted suit, that suit fits you and your body, at least at the state that it is when it was fitted, perfectly. It fits your arm, it fits your back, it fits your legs. It was made for you and it fits you. And when you are in it, it looks good. In many ways, the universe, the world, and all of us are made to be fitted with Jesus. We are created to be united with him as the source of life. And when we are united with him, when we are connected with him, that life that is within him comes to us. And we experience the fullness of what God has designed us for. Now, this life is tied with light. And we understand this scientifically. You cannot have life apart from the light of the sun that is necessary to bring about life. If the sun were blocked for any number of reasons, we would be extinct. Life does not exist apart from light. And this is where the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish writings make this connection. They connect life with light. And on the other side, they connect death with darkness. We see this consistently. And and in many ways, darkness is simply the absence of what? Light. And death is simply the absence of what? Life. And so when there is disconnection with light, there is darkness. When there is disconnection from life, there is death. And this is where we see that Jesus came into the world as life and light. And specifically on the cross, John will show that he faced darkness and death head on. This was not principles. This was personal. The life itself, the light itself experienced and underwent the realities of darkness and death on the cross. And yet what happened? The darkness could not overcome, it could not overtake, it could not conquer the light. The light emerged from the darkness. Life emerged from death. John writes that he, 
was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now there is an irony in this in that his own people, the Judean people, the Jewish people that were exposed to the one who, what John is telling us, is the Torah. So they followed the Torah. They followed the law. They saw that as the source of wisdom, the source of life in many ways. And yet John is showing the irony that the Torah, the law, the wisdom of God made flesh was rejected by the very people who claimed to follow it. And on the other side, the world itself witnessed the presence of its creator in person and rejected him. To not receive is to reject. And yet, because Jesus is life and he is light, to reject him is what? To experience and to live in darkness and death. You reject him to your own peril. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. There's an interesting element in that, in the Jewish culture, Hashem, the name, was used to refer to who? God. And this is where there is, there is this pulling in of these realities of the name into this person of Jesus. And the call that those who receive Jesus as who he truly is are those who follow him. In Isaiah and in Jeremiah, we find that to receive Torah is to follow it, to obey it. And so the understanding is those who receive Torah, who receive the law, are those who obey it, who follow it. To not obey or follow the Torah, the law, is to reject it. Whether or not you would say you did. And there is the same connection with Jesus. To receive him is to receive him as who he truly is. As John 20 says, that he is truly the Messiah. He's the king of the world. He's the son of God. And to receive Jesus as Messiah, as king, as Lord is what it means to receive him. And it is in this giving of yourself and giving of your life to him that we are offered this invitation to receive participation as children of God. That we receive from Jesus all that he is and all that he has, we receive his righteousness. We receive his relationship with the father as son. We receive his love and his life entirely. And this is where we see that we gain so much more than we give. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Hans Denk, the theologian says, the means to know God is Christ, whom no one may know unless they follow after him with their life. 
And this is where we have to see our tendency to take Jesus and fit him into our agendas and our life purposes. We have the tendency, all of us, to reframe Jesus according to our story, to take our natural ambitions, our natural purposes, our natural preferences, and to fit him into those. The problem is, is if you do that, you may have a version of Jesus, but you don't have the real Jesus, so you don't have the source of life and light. And this is what we will find through John's account. That those who are able to see the light are those who reframe their story around Jesus. We will see these themes of light and darkness play out through John's gospel. And those who believe are those who are enlightened, who see the light, the blind that can see. And it is always those who understand their desperate need for Jesus. It is those who are at the end of their rope. It is those who are without hope that when Jesus comes along, they see him for who he truly is. They see him as their only hope. They see him as their only source of life. And they give everything to follow him. It's often those who are rejected, who are outcast, who are downtrodden who come and reorient all of their story and all of their life around Jesus. Yet we will also see that those who remain in darkness are those who reframe Jesus around their story. Many of the examples we're going to find in John's gospel of unbelief happen at nighttime. It is in the darkness that people do not believe and there is a blindedness that John is going to show us that that is maintained by those who cannot allow their categories to be destroyed by Jesus. Often, these are Pharisees, the particular sect of Jewish leaders who had the most to lose, those who had their very particular view of how things worked, their very particular view of who God was and how he worked and and who could be part of his kingdom. And Jesus didn't fit that on any way. He did things like love and care for people on the Sabbath. He did not represent the power, the political and military and cultural power that they wanted the Messiah to represent. And this is where they remained remained blind. Ultimately, one blinding event for many of those who rejected Jesus was the cross. Because anyone who knew their scriptures, knew that a person who was hung on a tree was cursed of God. And there is no way that a man who was crucified, who died this agonizing, humiliating death of a criminal, could have anything to do with the true God. And yet, 
This is where John is going to show us that the real glory, the true glory of God is revealed. We'll find this in John's account. The moment of glory for Jesus, the hour of glory for Jesus is going to be the cross. It is on the cross that the the glory of God that doesn't look like the expectations for military conquering and, and political power were represented in any way. It looked like weakness, not strength. It looked like loss, not victory. And yet, as Craig Keener writes in his commentary, this glory becomes the ultimate revelation of grace and truth. Where the world's hatred for God comes to its ultimate expression, so also does God's love for the world. At the moment when the world rejects God, tortures God in the flesh, and hangs him on a tree, is the moment when the fact that Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, reveals the God that so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. My final point, and I hope the emphasis of this entire series, is to not reframe Jesus around your story, but to reframe your story around Jesus. Last Sunday, I left as soon as the service was over, and I got in a van with my wife and kids, and we drove to Atlanta. Jill's aunt had died the week before, and so we went to her funeral. And at her funeral, the liturgy was read, which was ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And the reminder was given that our life is but a breath, but a vapor. In many parts of the world, followers of Jesus celebrate the Lenten season. And the point of the Lenten season is to remember your mortality. To remember that you're only here for a moment, as I know Jill's Aunt Catherine experienced of all of her life and all of her relationships and all of her experiences coming quickly to a close. And the point of this is not just to make everyone depressed. The point is to offer wisdom, to offer perspective so that we remember that the things that seem so important, that seem so essential, in the light of our mortality, really aren't. It's been said that you can either live for your eulogy or your resume. You have to pick. And I think there's a reality to that. And what I loved about Anne Catherine's funeral was that there were so many things that were shared from the way that she loved Jesus, the way she served Jesus, the way she welcomed others into her home, the way her family was an embodiment of the love of Christ to all of their friends, 
and grandkids and all of these individuals who, who found the love of Christ through her. She served in her church in the music ministry. And so she led people in worship. Her, her life was not simply about herself. It was given selflessly so that others might see Jesus in and through her. And what that meant is that packed room of people were an embodiment of her legacy. And there's a way in which we all are called to consider that because we are so short on this world, spending our life on ourselves, on our agendas, on all of, all of the things that, that we make so important is ultimately foolishness. And the invitation is to see that you're really not that big of a deal. I know that sounds bad. And I do want to say very clearly, God loves you as an individual so much more than you could ever even imagine. And you're loved personally and, and individually. And, and that's a true reality that we have to hold. But on the same point, you're just not that big of a deal. Not like worth giving a life for, you know? And, and this is where the invitation of the kingdom of God is to see the greatness and the glory of Jesus as being worth living for. Of seeing that, that you can participate in something that goes on, that just to put this in perspective, that the world was spinning before you got here. And guess what? The world will keep spinning after you leave because you arrived in the middle of a story, not the beginning. You arrived in the middle of the story that goes back in eternity past to the beginning of the word or the word that was at the beginning of all things. The word that took on flesh and the word that is going to last forever. And that story that goes back and forward far beyond the bounds of your years in this life is the story <laughs> that's worth living for. That's, that our little stories can be joined up in and participate in his work. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When we go through the waters of baptism, that's what you're saying. My old story about me is dead and gone. And I am now brought into this story of Jesus. And I'm living for him. I've been crucified and Christ now lives for me. I live for him, for his purposes. And here's what that means. There's hope, right? He is the light who shines in the darkness. And as dark as it feels right now, as dark as we feel outside of us, as dark as it feels inside of us, the word is true. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness cannot, the darkness has not, the darkness will not overcome. And so I'm going to ask if you would stand with me and recite a passage of scripture. We're going to respond by song in just a moment. And our prayer room is open. If you want to talk about 
what it means to trust Jesus as your Savior. If you want to talk about what it means to follow him in baptism, or if you just need prayer for any number of things, the prayer room's open. I'll be there. Others will be there as well. We'd invite you to respond in that way. But before we move into this time of song, I want us to speak these words and allow them to give us perspective, maybe allow them to reframe our own story around the person and the power and the kingdom of Jesus. First Peter 1, 24 through 25 is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The glass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.